John Hoos was born in 1372 in the little town of Goosetown, that is Husenik, in the south today of Czech Republic. In his 20s, he shortened his name to Hoos, Goose, that's what it means, and he, he and his friends delighted in making puns out of his name. It was a tradition that continued, especially with Martin Luther, who reminded his followers the goose who had been cooked for defying the Pope. His father died when he was young, and although his mother was extremely poor, she was determined to send him to school, and he did, and when he was 26 years old, Hoos became a priest and a professor of divinity at the University of Prague, which was unusually high-honored position for such a young man. He was, though, a Roman Catholic, but in God's providence, someone handed him a copy of John Wycliffe's writings. His interest was aroused and began then to study the Bible for himself. He became troubled about his sins and spent much time studying the scriptures and reading the works of John Wycliffe. The Holy Spirit then opened his eyes to see the Savior, who was the only remedy for sin. And by faith, he trusted in the sacrifice of Christ Jesus and his sins were forgiven. Hoos began increasingly to trust the scriptures. He said, desiring to hold, believe, and assert whatever is contained in them as long as I have breath in me. And in 1402, he was asked to be the preacher of Bethlehem Chapel in Prague, which became the center of the Czech Reform Movement. Like Wycliffe, Hoos began to preach and write against the errors that he saw in the Roman Catholic Church. His clear, powerful preaching was easily understood. People began to consider seriously what he was telling them, and many then believed the Bible. The bishops tried to stop Hoos from preaching, but the queen of Bohemia was his friend and attended his church. She and her husband protected him. The bishops wrote to the pope and accusing Hoos of being a heretic. In 1409, the pope told the archbishop of Prague to root out heresy in his area, so the archbishop forbade Hoos from preaching and ordered that his books be destroyed. His books, along with some of Wycliffe's, were burned, but Hoos continued to preach. He leaned even more heavily on the Bible which he proclaimed the final authority for the church, who's further argued that the Czech people were being exploited by the Pope's indulgences, which was not so veiled attack on the Bohemian king who earned a cut of the indulgences proceeds. With that, Hus lost the support of the king. His excommunication, which had been tactically dropped, was now revived, and a prohibition was put on the city of Prague. No citizen could receive communion or be buried on church grounds as long as Hoos continued in his ministry. To spare the city, he withdrew to the countryside toward the end of 1412. He spent the next two years in a feverish literary activity composing a number of books. The most important was the book, The Church, which he sent to Prague to be read publicly. In it, he argued that Christ alone is the head of the church, that a pope, quote, through ignorance and love of money, end quote, can make many mistakes, and that to rebel against an erring pope is to obey Jesus Christ. In November 1414, the Council of Constance assembled, and Hus was urged by the Holy Roman Empire to, to come and to give an account of his doctrine, and because he was promised safe conduct, and because of the importance of the council, which promised significant church reforms, he went. And when he arrived, however, he was immediately arrested and remained in prison for months. Instead of a hearing, Hoos was eventually hauled before authorities in chains and asked merely to recant his views. As he was being led to prison, he spoke to his friends, quote, you know that I have taught you the truth. Continue in the truth and trust in the mercy of God. Beware of false teachers. I am going to this great assembly where the Lord will give me grace to endure trials, imprisonment, and if be his will, even the most dreadful death. Whatever happens, our joy will be great when we meet in the everlasting mansions. On July 6, 1415, he was taken to the cathedral, dressed in his priestly garments, then stripped off. They were stripped off one by one. He refused one last chance to recant at the stake, where he prayed, Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. As flames engulfed his body, instead of screams of agony, the people heard singing, singing, friends. In the midst of pain, John Hoos was singing praises to God so that this faithful servant of God entered into glory. His executioners scooped up his ashes and tossed them into the lake so that nothing would be remain of this heretic. John Hoos 
wasn't able to endure in ministry because of strength in himself. Instead, he strengthened himself by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And he was also set on continuing the mission of God, even when he would leave this earth. So he encouraged others to continue in gospel ministry. He was not afraid to suffer for the truth of the scriptures, as we heard. He, he knew who he believed, and he was convinced that God was able to keep him until that day. And it's good for us, church. It's good for us as a church in 2019 to remember those that came before us, that laid the path of ministry for us. And we owe a great debt to those that came before us in church history. But all of these reformers want us to remember Jesus more than anything. So if I'm successful in preaching this morning, you will walk away remembering Jesus more than anything else here. So here's my point. Here's what I'm getting at in my sermon. So if you write anything down this morning, write this down. Guarding the gospel requires strength in God's grace. I'll repeat it after I finish. Guarding the gospel requires strength in God's grace which allows us to delegate it to others faithfully, to suffer joyfully, and to remember with confidence our Savior. Guarding the gospel requires strength in God's grace, which allows us to delegate it to others faithfully, to suffer joyfully, and to remember with confidence our Savior. We're continuing in our journey to understand and apply the book of 2 Timothy this morning, and we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And if you're new to our church, we are happy that you're here. We are a Bible church. Very simply, everything we do should find its meaning and purpose in the Bible. We desire to read the word, to pray the word, to see the word through the sacraments, to sing the word, and to preach the word. That's what we believe as a Bible church should be. So if you don't have a Bible open this morning while I preach, you're not going to be helped, okay? So have your Bibles open. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We've provided Bibles in your seats there in the chairs, and I would encourage you to have that open. If you don't have one, please take that home with you and, and read this week. But follow as, as I read 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 1. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 935. I realize you're not sitting in pews, you're sitting in chairs. Chair Bible. I had pews when I was a kid. The Bibles. Chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may attain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace in sending your son to die in our place and to rise again, and that he's seated right next to you presently. Thank you that we can gather this morning to sit under the preaching of your word, I'm so thankful your people didn't come to see me this morning, but to see and to hear from you. May I serve you faithfully. Our desire is that you, you would be glorified. Help us to listen, help us to accept your word and to be patient with your word as it changes us. For your honor and glory we gather this morning. Thank you, God. Because of Jesus, we pray, amen. If you remember in this book, Timothy had been left in the city of Ephesus, the church there in Ephesus by Paul to preach and teach that church faithfully. And there were problems there. Every, every church has problems. Every church is filled with sinners. And for Timothy to continue in ministry, he needed to think differently. He, he could not let his emotions 
control his decisions for the church or for ministry. He would need to strengthen himself in God's grace, which would allow him to train others in ministry. Ministry could not end, the church could not end with Timothy. He had to view suffering differently than everyone else, and he had to see the beauty and strength in suffering for Christ. Timothy needed to guard the gospel. The only way that this endeavor of the church was to be successful was for the gospel to be handed down from one generation to the next. He had to guard the gospel against those that seek to destroy the work of God. And so Paul writes this letter to Timothy from prison in Rome, and he's encouraging them, guard the gospel, Timothy. And so there's four points. If you received a bulletin as you came in, you have them there if you want to follow with me in the outline as we walk through this passage this morning. First, he is to guard the gospel by strength. Verse one, it says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. If you remember, Timothy is a shy type of guy. He's a disposition to pull back. And, but Paul commands him here in verse one to be a strong man. He doesn't say you cannot do this ministry in your strength. He doesn't leave with a negative. He starts with a positive command. Timothy, be strong. Don't fall back in the weakness. Relying on yourself. Continue to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And because of his union with Christ as a Christian, Timothy already had grace. It was already in him. John 1.16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace was, was heaped upon, uh, he, grace was heaped upon Timothy's life. It could never be removed. But, but Timothy needed this, this nudge to remember to find his strength in God's grace. And the Greek nuance of this phrase is a present passive, so it's better translated, keep on being strengthened. Keep on being strengthened. God is the one who is strengthening you with his grace, and there will never come a time where, where for the Christian grace will run out. Remember James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Or he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's what James says. God continues to give more grace as we humble ourselves. And perhaps we lack the strength and grace we need. Possibly because we're so full of ourselves. And God gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to those that have humbled themselves to, who know that they need his help. He promises to give more grace. And so Timothy needed to be reminded to stop being tempted to rely on himself. He needed to be strong in the grace that comes from Jesus Christ. And, and how was he to keep on being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus? It was, it was to be constantly calling to mind that he had this grace, Christ's grace, grace upon grace because of Jesus Christ, because of what Jesus Christ did for him. By, by humbly recalling that there's always more grace. By, by constantly praying for grace that we know comes from Jesus Christ. See, prayer is our declaration of dependence on God. That's what prayer is. So we pray for God's continued grace in our life. To abandon prayer is to embrace atheism. So friends, if you're not praying, you're saying, I don't need God, or there is no God. And he's saying, pray. Again, remind yourself, Timothy, of this grace. Stay close to the Lord. God has never left you, and he promises to strengthen you by his grace. And, and nothing would come Timothy's way as he guarded the gospel that he would not have to, the strength, not enough strength in the grace of Jesus Christ that he couldn't endure. It was all by God's grace through Jesus Christ. No person, no pain, no problem, no responsibility or tragedy would come because he would strengthen himself, not in himself, but in the grace that comes from Jesus Christ. And the same is for us, Christian friends. God has called us to serve him in specific ways. He will continue to supply the strength of grace that is found in Christ alone. We don't have to muscle through. We rely on Jesus. So that's number one, guard the gospel by strength. Number two, guard the gospel by delegation. And he was charged to guard the gospel and to pass it on others. Paul writes in verse two, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy had heard most 
of the, of the monumental truths of the gospel for from Paul's own lips in, in the ministry that he'd been involved with. There were many witnesses to the fact that Paul had discipled Timothy in the gospel and ministry. And he had the gospel entrusted to him, as Paul says in chapter one, verse 14. But here Timothy is to, to further guard the gospel by, by delegating it to others. But not just anyone, though. Did you catch that? Paul wants him to look for faithful men. These are the ones that Timothy to spend most time with, that he's supposed to dedicate his energies with. In the Ephesian church, man, you can read about this Ephesian church. They were loaded with plenty of mischievous problem people who were not only unsound, but wholly bluntly opposed to the truth. Paul says later in this book, in chapter 3, verse 8, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men, these men in the, in the church in Ephesus, also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Then he says later in chapter 4, verse 3, people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And Timothy needed to entrust the gospel, not with these people, but with faithful men. These men had to have fidelity and integrity to the Lord. They couldn't be a, a flash-in-the-pan man, but reliable. They had to prove their faithfulness to the Lord, prove their faithfulness to the church, and their faithfulness to teach others also. And as pastors and elders, we have the responsibility to be spiritually picky, to be selective to whom we pass on the mantle of ministry. Entrusting someone means you are giving them a sacred deposit, a holy, precious thing, and are expecting them to take it, to understand it, to teach it, and to pass it on yet to another generation. It's committing something to someone else for safekeeping. And the implications are far-reaching and have, can have very tragic ends if we're careless. If Timothy was to leave the church, to, to travel to Rome, to visit Paul, he needed to be wise in whom he left the reins of the church ministry there in Ephesus. He needed to be careful. But not only this, as we look to apply this to the church as a whole, it's not only for the ministry of the local church. Every believer should be looking to pass on the gospel to the next generation. This is the living chain of truth that the Lord um, gives that extends through centuries. Paul would pour himself into Timothy, and Timothy would pour himself into others, who would then pour themselves into others, and the chain keeps going down. This is the normal Christian life. I said that in the first week as we were in the book. A Christian should be discipling someone. Discipling is, is helping others follow Jesus. And, and as the chain begins, it should grow from one link to the next. So Christian, here this morning, who are you discipling? Who are you helping to follow Jesus? Sometimes this happens without the other person even knowing. Shocking, huh? by encouragement, to read their word, asking them what they've learned from it, how they pray for them. Who are you discipling, Christian? Is the change just going to stop with you? We should all be occupied in this task. To be a healthy Christian means we're walking with our Lord and helping others walk with him too. In the early 17th century, Dr. Richard Sibbs wrote a little book about the Christian life called The Bruise Read. And I would Highly recommend you get a copy and read it. It's a very encouraging book. But a copy of that book fell into the hands of a tin peddler who gave it to a boy named Richard Baxter, who became one of the greatest Puritan pastors. Baxter then wrote, among other things, A Call to the Unconverted, which fell to Philip Doddridge, read in the early 18th century. And he, in turn, wrote this book, The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul, which then was picked up by William Wilberforce. And it changed the course of his life. Wilberforce and his work is an inspiration then to Charles Colson and his ministry, the Prison Fellowship. Sibs to Baxter to Doddridge to Wilberforce to Colson. Do you see the chain? It's just one story. There's thousands more from Thomas Brandwardwine to, to then passing on to John Wycliffe. And we heard about John Wycliffe, right? Because he passed on to John Hoos and then Martin Luther. See that the chains, the human chains of discipling. And this has happened over centuries by people just putting pen to paper, just writing the truths of what God's word says, passing on the glorious gospel from one generation to the next. And I stand here before you this morning 
having received this gospel, giving it to you to pass it on to others. This is the formula for church growth today, real church growth, as people hear the gospel and are changed. Perhaps you're here this morning to our fellowship and you do not call yourself a Christian and I have news for you this morning. We are a doomed race. Not because of overpopulation or global warming or neglect of this planet. We are a doomed race because all of us have rebelled against a holy and just God. A wonderfully gracious God. And we all willfully turn against him. And really, at the end of the day, we just want what we want. We want to please ourselves, and so we reject God and his rightful reign over us, and we thumb our nose at God. Friends, that's sin. That's a rejection of God. That is sin, and because of that sin, you're promised judgment, spiritually and physically. And God takes this seriously. He has to be. He has to take it seriously to be holy and just. It's good news that God is faithful and God is holy and God is just, but it's bad news if you're still in your sin. Because if you're not in Jesus Christ, you will receive that judgment. You can run, you can try to cover up with other things in your life, you can try not to think about this judgment, but it's coming and it's like an avalanche and it will swallow you up. You won't be able to stop it. Your good works won't stop it. Your Christian school attendance won't stop it. Your faithful attendance to Bible studies won't stop it. Your financial giving won't stop it. Because the good news of the gospel is that God saves sinners. That's the good news. And friends, it's the best news in the world. It's not fake news. It's really real. The perfect God himself came to earth and took our sins upon himself and died on the cross. Died the death that we deserve and rose from the dead three days later to prove that God accepted the payment. And if we are in Christ Jesus, we are saved, we are redeemed from the penalty of sins. And if you come here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, this is the best news that you have heard all week. Like Paul to Timothy and Timothy to others, I'm passing this news on to you this morning. Sinners can be saved, and it's God's gift to you. Your intellect cannot save you. Your good behavior cannot save you. Only one, Jesus Christ. He is your only hope. Embrace him this morning. You can choose to deny him, and I warn you not to do that. Please don't ignore him. Embrace him. He can answer all of your questions of faith and of the church and of life. Friends, I encourage you to repent of your sin, of trusting yourself, and believe in Jesus Christ. Embrace him. And if you want to know more about this, there's plenty seated right here that would love to answer those questions. Myself included. And my Christian friends that are here this morning, don't ever grow weary of sharing the good news. It really is the best news in the world. Do you believe that? Let's be gospel people who entrust this gospel to others who are faithful to share it with others still. Don't hoard the gospel this week. Don't keep it to yourself. Look for ways to, to share it with others, this glorious news. Third, we guard the gospel by suffering. After discussing how we are to guard the gospel by strength and delegation, Paul moves to guarding the gospel by suffering. Verse three, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 
Share with us, Timothy, the suffering is a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul loved this metaphor of a soldier. He earlier told Timothy in the first letter to wage the good warfare, and he called others his fellow soldiers throughout his New Testament letters, and he even uses each article of the soldier's uh, arraignment of his, his garb as an object lesson of a spiritual warfare for the believer. And, and being a soldier brings up some incredible qualities. For example, complete obedience and deep loyalty. Being in war means courage and commitment and sacrifice. And Timothy was to join in the obedience with Paul, to join in this loyalty, to join in the sacrifice. And he's encouraging him as a pastor. Being a pastor is, for, is not for the faint of heart. You must be ready to suffer as a soldier. A soldier is a practical man, a man who has work to do, a hard, unrelenting work. But then Paul takes this analogy further and more in depth with three descriptions here. He says in verse 4, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And Paul had seen firsthand what a Roman soldier looked like and acted like. A good soldier had a single-minded devotion to Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation, the Hebrew says. Single-mindedness, the ability to focus, to shut everything out when necessary. And this is the key to success in virtually every area of our life. But most, this is a necessity for those that are in ministry. An ordinary citizen is free. They, they're able to do many things they want to do. They can make their own choices, use their time however they, they desire, become involved in sports or education or politics or business. But a soldier, on the other hand, a pastor, answers to someone else. They cannot entangle themselves in those civilian pursuits. They're, they're tied to their singular commitment to the Lord. And what's their focus? What's their end goal? Their, their aim, as Paul says, is to please the one who enlisted him. It is Christ himself they seek to please. The pastor has a single-minded focus and does not get entangled in civilian pursuits, but his dedication is to the one who enlisted him. And we're constantly in wartime, standing on the watchtower, constantly to be contending for the faith. Charles Spurgeon takes this point home. He says, up, I pray you now, by him whose eyes are like a flame of fire, and yet were wet with tears, by whom on whose head are many crowns, and who yet wore the crown of thorns, by him who is king of kings and lord of lords, yet bowed his head to death for you. Resolve that to life's latest breath you will spend and be spent for his praise. The Lord grant that there may be many such in this church, good soldiers of Jesus Christ. In war, you will get shot at. You will get punched. You will suffer. But don't think for a second it's about you, Christian. If you think that you can be in ministry and you won't get any scars, then you won't be faithful to Jesus. You'll only be faithful to yourself. And I pray that our church will see a resurgence of men who are willing to enter the ministry for the glory of God and who are prepared to suffer as we guard the gospel. Paul isn't done, though. He moves to the next illustration for Timothy. In verse 5, he says, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Ancient athletes who participated in the Olympiad first had to compete and complete a required 10-month training period and then swear an oath that they had done it. That was the rules. And this is most likely with the reference that Paul is making here. This is disciplined training, and it's a normal course of life for a man that desires to serve the Lord full-time in ministry. You must be disciplined. You must be one who works hard. It suggests rigor and sweat. A person is conditioned by such dedication and will be prepared to join in the suffering. To be a pastor, you have to be disciplined. You have to be diligent. You have to put the hours in, primarily because no one else is watching. No one else is going to tell you to do that. And I'm here to tell you, studying the Bible takes time. It takes patience and endurance. There are many times that I spend hours in my office reading the text over and over and over and over, trying to understand. And without fail, when the time comes for me to write my sermon, something else is more important. Maybe I could check Twitter. Man, my desk is really dirty. I should probably clean it. Boy, that library looks really disheveled. Maybe I should go organize my books. You know, I have these picture frames in my office that I constantly stare at, and I think right when I'm ready to write my sermon, maybe I should hang those. 
Just like an athlete that could find other things to do instead of training, pastors can get caught up with things that don't matter. Paul says you cannot do that. This requires a single-minded focus. It requires hard work and training. And then Paul finishes with a third illustration, verse 6. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Farming is hard work. Is there any farmers here? Raise your hand. Literally northwest, right? Y'all work in the city or something. Farming is hard work. I spent one summer as a teenager to do a few farming jobs, and that was hard. Milking cows at the crack of dawn. Who gets up that early? Cows do, to eat. And then to be milked. Baling hay. Oh. And the farmer's life involves early and long hours because you can't waste time. And it's constant. Constant work. Plowing and sowing and tending and weeding and reaping and storing. And farming regularly has disappointments. Frost and pests and disease. And farming requires patience because everything seems to happen a whole lot slower than you want. And the monotony, the same thing over and over. This is farming. Paul says this is the work of ministry. This is what it's like to be a pastor. And he's right. He says this Pastoral work is hard. The ministry of the gospel requires strain and struggle and diligence, all of which is like suffering. And diligent people are better at suffering. And also hard work because, because before a man comes before a congregation to preach, he has to let the word preach against him. I can't tell you how many times I sit in my office and weep as the word of God plows through my heart. No pastor stands before the congregation well unless he has allowed the word of God to sink deep into his heart, to change him. And as a preacher, God has had his way with me for the last six days in his word. And you're hearing what he's taught me as I teach you. Now, I believe... I could be wrong, but I believe that's what he means here when he says the farmer who, has, who ought to have the first share of the crops. I, I've worked all week to, to feel the burden of what the Lord has in his word and what proclaimed to you, but then I get to reap the fruit of it before you even get a chance. As God teaches me, I get the first share. I get to taste and see that the Lord is good first before I get to come and share with you. I get to taste the fruit first. And the reward outweighs the suffering. Paul here ends the section of another command for Timothy. He says in verse 7, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. He doesn't say, ask the Lord to tell you what I mean. No, he says, get thinking. Meditate over what I just challenged you with. Completely false to say that the Lord will teach you whatever it means without thinking. He says you have to think. You have to meditate. You have to use that thing that sits above your shoulders. Think. Think over what I say. And Man, our culture doesn't like that. When naturally in our flesh, we don't want that. We want to rely on our feelings. What is my emotions telling me right now? And the waves going back and forth. And we disregard thinking. You know God gave you a brain, right? He's saying use it. Think. Think through what I'm saying. Think over what I say. Think about this. Meditate on this. Apply this. And then the Lord will help you. That's the promise. He'll give you understanding as you think. Paul says, think about what I just described to you. Think through these things, and God will give you understanding. Timothy needed a resolute dedication to the ministry if he's going to suffer with Paul. And in Hebrews 13, we learn that Timothy had been released from prison means 
that not long after Paul was killed, young Timothy would be in fact imprisoned, imprisoned. And Paul needed Timothy to guard the gospel by suffering. Saying, don't be a coward. Don't flinch when the hour comes for you, Timothy. You have orders, Timothy. And if an ordinary soldier can leave his family and friends and his comfort and his prosperity to endure hardship on the front lines, then you can too, Timothy, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So he needed to guard the gospel by strengthening himself in the grace of Jesus Christ, by delegating, by sharing to others, by suffering, and then last, the guard the gospel by remembering. He says in verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, has preached in my gospel. And this seems simple, but if we're going to guard the gospel, we have to remember the gospel. How can you guard it if you don't remember it? How can you guard it if you don't know it? You cannot be a Christian if you do not know the gospel. Or as I said last week, you cannot be wrong about the gospel and be right with God. So we have to understand the gospel. We have to believe the gospel. And Paul then so beautifully weaves the gospel right here into the letter of Timothy. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David is preached in my gospel. Remember Jesus Christ. Those who remember what God has done, what Jesus did, will live for God's glory in their life. Remember Jesus Christ. We're to look at Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And how could we ever forget Jesus? But we do. We get caught up in our daily lives and we forget Jesus. We forget why he came. We forget what he did. We forget that he died for our sins. And we we feel like we can muscle through trying to defeat them. And we forget the gospel every single day. And part of the gospel that we forget is that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He's alive. The term risen here in the Greek is a perfect tense, which means he was raised and is still raised. The resurrection proves the gospel is real. It, it, it proves it. It demonstrates the gospel's power. Jesus rising from the dead shows that God accepted the payment for our sins. And we can't have salvation without the resurrection. And remember, the resurrection brings about a perpetual Easter season in the lives of his children. We can celebrate Easter every week. So no matter what Sunday we gather together, it's right to say, he is risen. Praise the Lord. Right? He is still alive. Jesus is also the offspring of David, which shows us that Jesus was truly man. That he was fully God. Fully God and fully man. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is essential for understanding and defending the gospel. It also shows that Christ has the messianic qualifications and is the heir to the glorious promises of God for David. And as our Messiah, he's now seated in glory in his heavenly throne and will come again to reign over this world. And so it seems that Paul wants Timothy, when he's tempted to avoid pain and humiliation and suffering or death in his ministry, he needs to remember Jesus Christ and to think again. And suffering and pain is always worth it when we remember Jesus. And Paul is remembering Jesus. He says in verse 9, For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Paul is suffering for the gospel. He is treated like a criminal. Although he's a Roman citizen and he's innocent, he's chained. He's awaiting death sentence. His circumstances were humiliating. A criminal during this time was someone they talked about as a, a violent murderer, a thief, or a traitor, and they were destined to be punished and tortured. And Nero had just burned Rome, and he blamed the Christians, of whom, who was Paul? The leader. So he's chained. He's viewed as a, a criminal, a scum to everyone else. And all of this was for the gospel. You think, you, you would think that if anyone had motive to want pity or feeling bad, it would be Paul, right? But what does he say at the end of verse 9? Well, the word of God is not bound. Almost every story that I've shared at the beginning of my sermons in this series talk about a reformer, and many were killed thinking that the people killing him, thinking that if they, if they kill him, they'll snuff out what they're doing. And if I, if I kill him, 
what they're doing is going to be, is going to be done. If I, if I take them out, then, then what they're doing is going to end. But the word of God is not bound. And the same was true for Paul. He was speaking from experience. Philippians 1, 12 through 14. I want you to know, brothers, that was, has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard, because he's in prison, and to all the rest of my imprisonment for Christ. And most of my brothers, having been confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And we, we look at imprisonment and we think he's got to get out of there so he can serve the Lord. And Paul says, I'm serving the Lord right here. Pray that more to get saved. So you have a different viewpoint of suffering altogether than us. When Patrick Hamilton was burned at the stake in 1528 in Scotland, there was such a force given to the gospel through his burning that his adversaries of the gospel said, let us burn no more martyrs in public for the smoke of Hamilton's burning has made many eyes smart until they're opened. On January 9th, 1985, Pastor Haristo, a congregational pastor in Bulgaria, was arrested and put in prison. His crime was that he preached in the church even though the state had appointed another man to pastor the congregation that did not elect. And his trial was a mockery of justice and he was sentenced to eight months in prison. And during his time in prison, he made Christ known every way he could. And when he got out, he wrote this. Both prisoners and jailers asked many questions and it turned out that we had a more fruitful ministry there than we could have expected in the church. God was better served by our presence in prison than if we'd been free. And there's so many stories of this. God continues to do this. And the truth, this is what I'm wanting to, 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 to cement in your mind, friends. The word of God is not bound. The word of God can, can no more be chained than God himself. And he says, Paul says, therefore I endure everything. I endure this, this suffering, this prison, everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may attain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The unstoppable power of the word means that it will prevail with those, the elect, will be saved and brought into eternal glory. It's not just the power of preaching, though. He's Paul saying it's also the power of suffering. There's power in suffering that others will be brought into the eternal family. They need preaching, but also the suffering. And Paul's suffering was never wasted. And the mighty, effectual word gives us the reason to endure. And Timothy will need to stand tall in the face of opposition and preach the word and be ready to suffer. As I end here, we, we, Paul ends this section with a common poem and expression that would have been known to Timothy. Each stanza in verses 11 through 13 begin with if that describes the believer's actions and is followed by the responding phrase that gives Christ's response. Listen as I read verse 11. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. First, if we have died with him, we'll also live with him. I believe Paul is referencing Romans 6, where Paul uses the baptismal imagery to describe the conversion as dying and rising with Christ. And that's why we believe and we teach that baptism is for those that profess Jesus Christ. Baptism is a sign that the gospel has taken effect in someone's life, bringing forgiveness and reconciliation, rebirth, and new life. And his statement here is almost identical to Romans 6, 8. that says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. It's a positive statement. If we die to ourselves by, by trusting in Christ and believing his resurrection, we will also live with him right now and the life to come. But the second one, he says, if we endure... We will also reign with him. And this is the second positive statement. It means to hold your ground, particularly through suffering and affliction. And the response here of what Christ does is amazing. We will also reign with him. This is not a pie in the sky reward. Paul told us what comes for us as we suffer and endure with the Lord. We are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Romans 8. 
And so in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Christian, we have lots to look forward to. The best is yet to come for us as we enter in eternal, eternal rest, but to also eternal service with Christ and to glory. But Paul ends here with two negative statements, two negative statements. First, if we deny him, he also will deny us. This is apostasy. To disown or deny can have a wide range of meanings in the New Testament from Peter temporarily denying Jesus to full-blown apostasy. And here it means full-blown apostasy. He will mention two later in verses 17 and 18, Hymenaeus and Philetus. So this is a warning for those that believe they are Christian because they said a prayer at camp when they were nine years old and now at 49 they deny Christ in every way in their life. I believe the new, the NIV actually has a translation. It's probably more accurate. If we disown him, he will also disown us. It's a warning. If you disown Jesus in your life, meaning if he is absent in your life, if he's never mentioned, if he's never talked about, if he's never thought about except for a, maybe an occasional Sunday service when you think about going to church, if you disown him in your life, he'll disown you. If you deny Jesus and, and preference for yourself, he will deny you on that day of final judgment. Friends, Jesus is not a magic genie that resides in a lamp that you can just rub at any point and call up any time and grant you wishes. Jesus is Lord. And so if you are a Christian, it means he's Lord of your life. He must be in control. That's the Christian life. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's the first negative warning. The second is the end there. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. This is a negative statement. I believe it's negative, not positive for the reader. Many have interpreted this to mean that it's okay if you lack a little faith here or there, God remains faithful. And to a certain extent, that's true. God's always faithful. But I interpret this as a warning. It's logical as a hymn that the first two are positive and the last two are negative. Two pairs. If we deny him, if we are faithless, are parallels, which requires that he will deny us and he remains faithful as parallels also. So God will remain faithful to the promise to judge those that have no faith in him. It's a warning. William Hendrickson writes, faithfulness on his part means carrying out his threats as well as his promises. So if you do not have faith in him, if you say he is untrustworthy for your life, then God will remain faithful to his word and he will judge you. Why? Paul says, for he cannot deny himself. God is totally committed to himself. He is not sentimental. He's sovereign. He will keep his word. God is radically God committed. God is radically God centered. And Christian, so should you be. God is radically God-centered. If God could deny himself, you would not be able to count on him being faithful to the promises to you, and you would have no hope of eternity with him. God cannot deny himself. He cannot act contrary to himself. So God remains forever himself, the same God of mercy and justice, fulfilling his promises, whether that be blessing or judgment, giving us life if we die with Christ and a kingdom if we endure, but denying us if we deny him. So as we, we look back over this first half of chapter two, Paul is driving home a single reason for Timothy. He must guard the gospel and guarding the gospel requires strength in God's grace, which allows us to delegate it to others faithfully and to suffer joyfully and to remember with confidence our Savior. The Christian life is not meant to be lived in ease and comfort. To follow Christ means we will suffer. And Jesus displayed that to us and for us. No cross, no crown. This is the principle which took Jesus through a lowly birth and a shameful death to his glorious resurrection and heavenly reign. Jesus was so bent on saving sinners by suffering sacrifice of himself that he created the tree 
on which he was to die. And he nurtured from infancy the men who would nail him to that tree. No cross, no crown. It was this principle that brought Paul to a prison cell to suffer so that the gospel would be proclaimed. It's the same principle which makes the soldier willing to endure hardship, the athlete discipline, the farmer toil. So it's ridiculous for us to expect that the Christian life and service cost nothing. Mark chapter 8, and I'll end with this. Verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For is it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whosoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. Sorry, I have one more verse. Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Father, we perhaps have come in this morning believing the lie that the Christian life is one of ease until we float into heaven. Convict us of the truth of your word. If we're to follow Jesus, we must deny ourselves and our comforts. If we're to serve God, we must take up our cross to die to ourselves and to follow him. Help us to rebel against this world, against the philosophies of this world that pushes that our lives need to be tied up in this world when we know as Christians that they're not. Our lives are hidden in heaven. And for us to live as Christians is to serve Jesus and to die is gain because we will finally be home with our Savior. Father, help us to be faithful to you. Father, take your word this morning and use it in the lives of your children here. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.